G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today I've got Stuart Wames from ProSolution Private Clients back on the show to give us his insights into why he sees many clients and investors hold themselves back from investing more when they could or should invest. Really interesting topic, more going into the mindset and psychology and how to set yourself up to be able to grow and build a portfolio that's going to give you the wealth to really set yourself up and live a wonderful life, which is what we're all about here at Perth Property Insider. So let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth Property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. You've probably heard that 90% of property investors own just one to two properties, and it's certainly a lot better than owning none. But it's not likely to give people the kind of wealth and passive income that they need, and they'll likely work that out all too late when there's not enough time left to have compounding do the heavy work. I'm also finding that right before my eyes over the last few years, those that have taken action and been buying here have already had some fantastic gains, which is awesome. But We also see reports that household savings across COVID are at record highs and many people have paid off their home loans some few years in advance. So people are sitting on a lot of cash, not everyone, of course. So I wanted to get my financial planner and good friend Stuart Wames along today to discuss some of the common reasons he sees clients having not invested as much as they could or should have. So welcome along today, Stuart. Hey, Jared, great to be back with you. Yes. So, is this a pretty common thing that you see that people are sitting on big piles of cash and not sure what to do with it? Um, there's obviously varying degrees on that, isn't there? I reckon the best um, signal of it is if you have a look at how many self-managed super funds there are in Australia and the asset allocation within those super funds. And I, look, I can't recall the stats off the top of my head, but I know that self-managed super funds are the largest sector. So, there's a there's more invested in self-managed super funds than any other sector, including industry super funds. And there's a huge amount of cash, you know, something like 40% or something of self-managed super funds are invested in cash. Well, if you think over the last couple of years, what the earnings would have been in cash, probably close to zero, right? So it's probably the best thing to sort of point to that that demonstrates that, you know, people, I think people tend to make very ad hoc approaches to building wealth. So they might get very excited about it, go and set up a self-managed super fund, and then they're stuck. What do I do next? And their their day-to-day living, if they've got kids or whatever, you know, their life's busy for most people. And and so they get stuck and, you know, what where do they invest or when what do they do from there? So yeah, it's a it's a challenge. And I think it's a challenge for the vast majority of Australians wouldn't be making the most out of their financial opportunities. I guess when you don't know what to do with it, and it is very ad hoc, you do put it into paying off your home loan more, getting in front on that because you may not have a plan. It's not a terrible thing to do either. I mean, debt reduction at some point, you know, we want to, when we enter into retirement, we don't want to take a home loan with us. So, you know, that makes complete sense. And, 
Uh, maybe people tell themselves a bit of a story, well, I'll, I'll park it in my home loan and I'll work it out next year or next month or next week, uh, whatever it might be. The, the problem is life gets in the way and before you know it, you're 10 years away from retirement and you've got to do all the, the heavy lifting, which means you know, you've got a very short runway, which means you've got to start taking uh, much higher risks. Whereas if you started a bit earlier or sooner, you can afford the, the longer the, the time horizon, the, more, the lower risks you can afford to take. Hmm. So what are some of the main reasons that people don't invest as much as they could? Well, knowledge would be one thing. And really, knowledge comes with familiarity and riskiness. If what's un- unknown to me feels risky. And so, that you know, the problem is, well, what do I do and who do I trust? You know, do I invest in the share market? Well, I know nothing about share markets. So I can dump it in a Vanguard fund or something like that. Is that a good thing to do? And then when it comes to, you know, who do I trust? You know, do I go and ask a friend at a barbecue or do I go and uh, take a leap and put my faith in a financial advisor? It all feels kind of too risky. And part of it's, you know, lack of knowledge, I think, uh, because I think investing is simple but not easy. Simple because I think, you know, investing can be explained in very simple terms uh, to people with no, in, with no background in finance. It really is just basic logic and basic maths. But uh, so it's simple, but not easy because, you know, it feels risky. And we know that we can't have high cognitive ability when we have a high emotional state. I mean, that's just proven from a a human brain that it's not possible. So in order to make great decisions, we need to keep our emotions really low and that improves our cognition. And so when we start to worry about money or worry about making a mistake, more importantly, uh, you know, we end up making a bad decision. Headlines at the moment too as well, isn't it? Well, there's never a good time to invest. You know, there's never a – you're not going to pick up the paper tomorrow and, and see any good news. They're always going to find something to uh, to worry about. So, um, you, but you're right. You know, we, we are impacted by those sorts of things and we, we kind of tell ourselves, you know, this, this time is different. The thing that creates volatility and uncertainty and, and worry and, and media attention – by definition, has to be unexpected because expected is not news to us. You know, okay, these things are going to happen, no big deal. But it's always unexpected and, and to be unexpected often is unique. So by definition, it has to be unexpected and unique. But the thing is, though, that we've been through lots of these times before where these unexpected, unique things have occurred, but fundamentals don't change. And I think that's a really important thing. I, I mean, I remember watching CNBC or many of the US financial shows during the GFC, it sort of been 2008 or something, so quite, quite a you know, 14 years ago. Uh, and I'd stay up late and just sort of watch what's going on. And I, I, it resonates today. Person being interviewed said, that's it. Business has changed. We're never going to do business the same way that we've done before. You know, banking's going to change, et cetera. I mean, we're in the middle of a, a global financial meltdown. So, you know, we conceive it, it, it sounded reasonable to me that, of course, if, you know, the banking sector is going to blow up, yeah, of course, there's got to be some long-term consequences of that. But nothing really changed. You know, we there was some volatility, it recovered. Uh, banking hasn't really changed. I mean, certainly a regulatory environment's changed a little bit, but still, the way we do business really hasn't changed. And, you know, I, I reflect back on that. I mean, it's some 14 years ago, as I, as I say, but you know, COVID will pass, you know, in five years' time, inflation won't be an issue. In five years' time, we'll be over the interest rate shock and, you know, things will normalise. But in five years' time, there are a whole new set of problems that we'll need to worry about. 
But the point is that investing in property or buying investment grade property or investing in shares, these the, the fundamentals behind those things just don't change. And I do notice that when people um, don't have the experience, they try to keep seeking more knowledge and they can get lost in that analysis paralysis for a while. Is that pretty common? Yeah, look, knowledge I don't think is the answer because, you know, if we have a think about, you know, our parents when they were growing up, there was no internet and knowledge wasn't really their number one problem, you know, because now we have heaps of knowledge. Now you can jump online and there's a huge amount of information, you know, more than you could ever consume in your lifetime, but we're no better off for that. It's experience that you lack, you know, and that's the, the and, and that, that would be true really in any profession. You know, if you if you have a, a life-threatening operation that you need, are you going to go with the doctor with one year's of experience or 20 years of experience? They're both in the same university. They both study the same tests, same qualifications, same specialisation, all those sorts of things, but one has a lot more experience. Well, most people are going to say, I want the guy with 20 years of experience. Mm. And the reason for that, is that they've seen a lot of different scenarios and then they know how to navigate those scenarios. And we all know when we started out in our careers, we made mistakes because, and that's how we learn. You know, we learn sometimes just through academia and then other ways on the job learning. So people with a deep level of experience, they know how how and when to apply that knowledge. And without the experience, you don't know how and when to apply the knowledge. And, you know, I think that that gives people a lot of comfort. So. You know, people out there listening, you know, want to start on that investment journey, finding someone with that level of experience, whether it's an advisor or a mentor or a friend, that's really what you want to lend against. Instead of making your own mistakes, learn from other people's mistakes. And I've heard you mention in one of your uh, podcasts before, Dan Kennedy's famous uh, approach of who, not how. And I find that just anchoring myself in that question of not what do I need to know to move ahead? Who do I need to know to move ahead? Yeah, and look, sometimes, you know, particularly with investing, I mean, you can learn from other people. So so you don't have to, you talk to someone that's done very poorly with investing. There's probably just as many lessons there to learn as someone that um, has done very well. So I think going and speaking to a whole bunch of people, I mean, it gives you confidence as well. And even if it's about um, seeking advice from a professional advisor, Speak to a whole bunch of people that have dealt with it, good or bad advisors, and you'll learn some things of what to look for and what to look out for uh, in order to make that decision. But I think about the, the who decisions, I think, is uh, is a really good one because if we don't have the level of experience to work out the how, then we really need to defer to the who. Mm. So that can get us over, you know, spinning our wheels, wanting more knowledge and and some of the fears that come up from the media and there's always something on the horizon. Is there other things that stop people from taking as much investing action as they otherwise could? You know, when we have a, uh, if we don't really know where we're heading, it's very difficult to work out the how to get there. So, you know, if I stopped someone in the street and asked them for directions, of course they're going to say, where are you heading? If I say, well, I have no idea how that, I mean, they can't help me, right? So it's the same with, um, uh, building a financial strategy or making financial decisions. Should I go and buy an investment property? Well, I don't know. As a as a generic idea, you know, it's not a bad one. You know, if you buy the right asset, you'll probably do well. But does it suit your strategy? Well, I have no idea. It just really depends on, you know, what other assets you have, what's your cash flow position. 
um, how far away from retirement you are. You know, there's a whole myriad of, of considerations that we need to think about. So I find that once we have a, a sort of clear idea or a clear plan on where you are today and what you need to do over the next 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it might be, in order to achieve your goal, which is typically more freedom around uh, whether to earn zero income or a lower income than what you're earning today. Once you've got a plan on how to execute that, then we have the context for making decisions. So if a client of mine comes to me, in fact, a client of mine did come to me yesterday and said, look, I want to buy this holiday house. Well, we've implemented a lot of this client's assets already. He's got a great property portfolio. We're building a really substantial share portfolio outside super. He's got super. He's got enough assets already and they will perform over the next 10 years. He'll be completely fine. So yeah, we've got surplus capacity. Go and buy the holiday home. It's a safe thing to do. But that holiday home decision is much more difficult if we if we didn't either firstly didn't have those assets, but secondly didn't have the strategy in place because you don't really have that context anymore. Makes you feel a lot less guilty for going and um, you know getting yourself that holiday home too if you know you're on track. And we do want to enjoy some rewards in life and not just put everything away. For retirement, I think especially the next generation is more about having a great lifestyle along the way. So for me, the most important thing of having my plan was to know that, hey, I'm going to be okay by 50 years of age, 60 years of age, 70 years of age. And this is how it can potentially all look. And that also took away a lot of my kind of nervous um, anxiety and and overstressing towards, am I going to be all right? Yeah, and and spending of surplus income as well. So you know, if you um, if you have a strategy and your strategy dictates, well, we've got to service these investment properties and invest amount in shares and contribute amount in super. And once you've done that in that particular year, if you then get a bonus or you've had a better year business wise, well, you know that is surplus income. Now you don't have to go and blow it all, but you know, you you if you want to go on a better family holiday this year. Well, you feel empowered to do that because, you know, that whole mentality of pay yourself first, you know, do the most important thing first, which is really secure your financial future. And then anything, any surplus cash flow uh, above and beyond that, you know, if we want to upgrade that family holiday, we can, we can do so. And, and you bang on, Jared, in terms of enjoying the journey. You know, we don't know how long we're going to be around for. Hopefully we make it to retirement, enjoy the spoils of uh, all our hard investing and, and, and hard work to get there. But we may as well enjoy the journey along the way. And I think having that plan empowers people to do that. Mm. And with it being rather mechanical as well, it just takes the noise and the fear out of the question because it's like this year my plan was to save enough deposit to buy a property. You get to that point, you execute on it. You're buying something that is evidence-based and longer term, you know that regardless of the little ups and downs that might happen over the short term, this is going to be an asset that's worth holding for that compounding growth over 10, 20, 30 years, and you don't necessarily care too much over the shorter term. So that's how I've found to, it easier to make take action in the face of difficult media headlines and another war in Ukraine or rising in interest rates or whatever. You know, you just execute the plan. Success is a lot about discipline. And sometimes discipline to do nothing. I mean, and that can be just as challenging as discipline to do something. But once you have a well thought out strategy, I mean, you don't necessarily be completely blind to risks and opportunities Mm. or changes to your own circumstances or goals. 
uh, they're going to happen over the period of time. But bad news, bad news is just consistent. So if you've got the discipline to stick to the plan, and look, I think uh, having a plan, as I said, it does empower you in a, in a much, it, it invites that discipline because you know you've got the confidence, well, the plan's going to work because, you know, I've modelled it out and I can see the the risks and opportunities associated with it. So I think you're right. Employing a rules-based approach, uh, and one of those rules is follow the strategy, it uh, helps us reduce the amount of emotions that might be going on in our head uh, and, and really helps us focus on good con- cognitive de- decision-making. The other great thing about investing regularly over time is that you're not requiring that one investment that you're making to set the world on fire and you're not in, you know, also requiring the timing for that one investment that you're making to be perfect either. Yeah, you've got to spread your timing risk uh, as much as you possibly can. That, that's more challenging uh, with direct property because it's such a lumpy asset. But with share investing or super contributions, that's a lot easier to do. Um, and we know uh, markets, all markets, including property or shares or whatever we might be talking about, bonds, uh, trend higher over time. So there's going to be times where we make investments and our investments are going to lose money in the initial period of time because no one can really pick the bottom of the market. No one can really predict short-term volatility. But we also know mathematically it doesn't really matter. Actually, if we just stick to the plan and we make those regular investments, mathematically, we don't have to be right in terms of those when we're making those monthly investments. We know that statistically, over long periods of time, we'll we'll spread that risk and essentially eliminate that timing risk. And so having that discipline to... Now, it's easier said than done, though, because there's always reasons to stop investing. (laughs) Yeah, simple but but not not easy. Not necessarily easy, yeah. So, you know, I think that having, the, having a, an accountability mechanism, so for, for people that do work with an advisor, you know, if and if they're doing some regular investing, for them have to pick up the phone or ring that advisor or email that advisor and say, look, I don't want to do it this month. Well, firstly, a good advisor is going to push back on that and remind them about the fundamentals. But secondly, because of that accountability aspect, most people would feel a bit silly doing that, and so they don't tend to do it. So I am surprised every now and again. I mean, I'm lucky I've got a whole bunch of really good clients that understand the process, understand the the fundamentals. But every now and again, you know, when some volatility happens, the client will say, well, maybe we don't do it this month. Well, if there's more volatility this month, we absolutely should do it. There's even more reason to do it. And I remember watching an interview by Jack Bogle, who um, really invented index investing and started Vanguard in the mid-70s. Uh, and he said, that's the worst time to stop investing is when there's volatility because no one knows where the bottom of the market is. But if you keep buying all, all the way down, at some point, you're going to be right. And in the long run, you're going to be much better off for it. So, um, I know yeah. I've heard you say before something about if you're out of the market during the the 10 best days over what period is that like it really affects your returns doesn't it yeah that's right see i mean you can look over any period but even long periods of time so mm-hmm. if you invest in the market over a 10-year period but you remove the 10 best days your return halves that's only 10 days out of three and a half thousand days or whatever now they're all trading days so two and a half thousand days only 10 of those you miss and and your return is halved so, you know, if you're going to not have the discipline to regularly invest, then you want to be absolutely certain that you know when those 10 best days are and you better not miss them because if you do, 
you're going to be much worse off. Mm. Well, the reality the is that the whole crowd joins and you're hearing about it at your barbecue, you're probably buying it the, the 10 worst days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. You know, I mean, the best time to invest in is when it's incredibly unpopular to do so. Mm. So, you know, if there's a, I mean, the East Coast has been, from a property perspective, a lot more popular over the last eight-ish years than Perth has. But arguably, that makes Perth more investable because there's going to be fewer people to compete with. I mean, we're still dealing with some stock levels, of course, but uh, fewer people to deal with. And we know mean reversion will kick in at some point, you know, that um, really capital city growth rates in Australia don't really vary that much. I mean, Melbourne City... Uh, maybe uh, one or so percent a little bit more, but, you know, generally don't divert too much. And the same with the stock market, you know, when everyone's thinking best time to sell, that's often the best time to buy. So volatility creates opportunities. And if you're a long-term investor, you better get used to volatility and bad news because it's going to happen. And I would invite people to see it more as as an opportunity rather than a threat or something to be worried about. Mm. So definitely a few of those things that I've wrestled with myself there. (laughs) In my earlier days, I had analysis paralysis for a long time and thought that more information would would help and I was very uh, trying to do everything by myself. Um, And then as I speak to clients, I I find that they, they just get so wrapped up in the news as well and get lost in that fear. And then if the first two haven't got people, Someone's asking me, where should I buy, Jared? What sort of price should I do? And I say to them as the first answer, a first question, do you have a plan and how does this fit into it? And then uh, we're, we're drawing often three strikes on those. So it's almost, it's very easy to see, isn't it? Why 90% of investors do only get to one or two properties and don't push through to build out that portfolio and to create that wealth that they could do over the time. You know, I read an interview, or maybe it was a story that Jerry Seinfeld was saying, and he was talking to Dave Letterman, uh, studying his Seinfeld sitcom, and he said to Dave Letterman, he goes, Dave said, how's the sitcom going? He's oh, it's okay, but uh, NBC's um, hired these writers for me and got sort of a room full of 15 writers, and actually they're not really that good. And Letterman turned around and, and said to him, well, wouldn't you be surprised if they were? Like, if it was easy, wouldn't everyone be doing it? Like, you'd be more surprised if they were all awesome writers, wouldn't you? And I think it's the same, and that kind of resonated that story with me, and I think it's the same with investing. Like, if everyone was rich, then it would be easy, right? Not everyone's independently wealthy, and the reason why is because it's simple but not easy. You know, and if we we understand, oh, well, we just need to have a plan, well, that's not difficult, is it? But then why don't lots of people have a plan? Well, who knows? You know, that's it's probably more about human psychology more than anything else. But you know, we've got to figure these things out. You know, who to trust and mm. um, which advisors to use, and those sorts of things. They're not insurmountable, but we've got to got to deal with them. Now, they're not always easy, but that's okay because if it was easy, everyone would be wealthy. But we need to sort of climb those hurdles, and once you get through it, they're not they're not big issues but once you get through it then it becomes always becomes a bit boring on the other side Stuart (laughs) (laughs) investing should be boring absolutely absolutely yeah 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 it absolutely should be boring so 
No worries. Well, we're going to at least try and make our podcast exciting. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Actually, I shouldn't be saying that. Another one, and I appreciate you uh, giving us that mindset correction. And um, if people do want to reach out and think about engaging your business, where should they go? And I'll put your details in the show notes, of course. But who are the types of people that you typically work with and who can you help the most? Uh, so I strongly believe, as you know, Jared, in, in taking a holistic approach. Um, which means, uh, well, the, the, the reason for that is that a lot of financial decisions are multifaceted. You know, we've got to consider taxation, planning, borrowing capacity, you know, all these sorts of things. And they're kind of superannuation and they're all interrelated. Mm. Um, That's why you can do your head in when you're an individual trying to put this patchwork together. Yeah, because you talk to your accountant, he says one thing, you talk to your financial planner, he says another, you talk to your mate down the road, they say something completely different. Um, I and mean, it's a little bit like going to your GP, your doctor, and saying, look, I've got something wrong with me, but just um, you can only examine the right side of my body. You know, don't examine the left. You know, most doctors can turn around and go, well, I can't give you a diagnosis. I need to see the whole picture. Mm. And it's the same with financial advice, I think, you know, taking a holistic approach. So we work with clients on a holistic basis. We look after their accounting and tax and financial planning and so forth, and we make sure everything is holistic and integrated and build a, a long-term plan and work with them to, to sort of implement that. So if people want to find out more, I, I would just say Google in, Investopoly, which is my uh, podcast and blog, uh, and that gives you, a, I think, a good in, introduction into the way we think and, you know, the way we invest. Mm. And book by the same names, really excellent too, but a few copies on my shelf and <laughs> re-listen to the audio every now and then. Do you have it in audio? No, it's it's only in hard copy, isn't it? No, I, we uh, uh, ebook and, and uh, an e-book, just hard yeah, copy. That's what I, that's yep. what I usually do. Yeah, yep. yeah. But great book, especially for getting those foundational principles in place and finding out what your overall investing philosophy is about. So, yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining me. Well, good. Thanks, Ian, Jared. Cheers. Just a reminder that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature, as we don't know your specific situation. You should always seek professional advice before taking any action. For free market reports on your suburbs of interest and other helpful resources to grow your wealth, make sure you join my property investor update at investorsedge.com.au slash join. And finally, make sure you're a member of our Perth Property Investment Facebook group. To be part of the conversation with other like-minded investors, get help to your questions and get a feel for what's going on out there in the market. I'll see you in the group. Mm-hmm.